The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad, and we have another very special guest joining us today. And uh, judging from her resume, she apparently is incapable of holding a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to welcome Brianna Wu. Uh, and for anybody that's ever listened to uh, Rocket, uh, and many recent episodes of Twit. Um, and uh, what's the other show that you do, Brianna? I, I do Disruption. I do Disruption. That's right. Yeah. Relay. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to be here. I am so happy to talk about cars. You know, people that really love cars and get cars, we are, you know, it's hard to meet each other these days. You know what I mean? Like everything, it feels like, you know, the generation is coming up after us. They don't, they don't think about this stuff as much as I do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they will. <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little later. I think, you know, with some of the changes that are, that are happening, yeah. they may, they may come to really appreciate the, the good old days, the golden age of cars, which is actually right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this really is a golden age for, for car fanatics. Um, and you know, it, it's funny, you know, uh, my, my youngest child, didn't get her driver's license until she was 20. Oh, my God. Didn't, wasn't even interested in learning how to drive. And I'm an automotive engineer, and I've worked in this industry my entire adult life. And 20 years old before getting a driver's license. I mean, can you imagine that? I can't. You know, in Mississippi growing up, uh, this should not have been legal. But, uh, you know, the, the age to get a <laughs> learning permit in Mississippi, it was only 14. So I'm 14 years old out there, like driving an MGB around. <laughs> like it was absolutely <laughs> awesome. And, you know, in Mississippi growing up, it's like if you wanted a car, you had to go restore that car yourself. Like this is how I got into engineering. Just find one lying on the on, in the woods yeah. off the side of the road and you're, you're joking all it out and- that's exactly what it was my first summer project when i was uh 15 was restoring that mgb into awesome condition so yeah it's just it boggles my mind well, I, but before uh, oh go ahead dan oh, good i was just gonna say i think that opportunity is still going to exist but the the flip side is uh there's going to be a lot more electronic troubleshooting and repair uh, that goes along with it. You know, the mechanical stuff is still there and it still takes finesse to, you know, know what, how to put the bolts in right and, you know, how, how everything fits together. But in the, the last cars, I really did a lot of DIY maintenance on. I had to learn all kinds of stuff about, 
interfaces and the, the, the software to you know talk to can and all that stuff that it's just like i just want to put two wires together yeah i really just want this to work no you're dead well, on with my audi tt so my last project i spent fourteen thousand dollars restoring a gen one audi tt and you're you're dead on like i have spent so much time on the electrical system for that car and i tell you like i'm recently good at cryptography and like trying to get audi to communicate <laughs> <laughs> and to register the changes I'm making, that was nearly beyond my skill level. So, yeah, I'm right there with you. So before before we dive into all this automotive geekery, <laughs> um, for for those of those in the wheel bearings audience who aren't familiar with Brianna Wu, why don't you? Give us a little primer on, on who you are. Sure, sure. So, you know, uh, I grew up in Mississippi. I uh, started my own game studio uh, here in Massachusetts a few years ago called Giant Space Cat. We specialized in the Unreal Engine. And, you know, like I have always my entire life when more games where women got to be the heroes. So I went and founded, you know, I'm not talking like some 2D iPhone game POS thing. Like this was a full-fledged <laughs> Unreal Engine, like you know, a very, very significant budget uh, iPhone game that took a team of essentially five people uh, three years to make. I'm very, very proud of it. We won a ton of uh, Game of the Year awards uh, for our vanilla version. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, what I'm not one most known for isn't my engineering skills or being an entrepreneur. Uh, it is uh, Gamergate. Uh, I was one of the women that was primarily targeted by the alt-right uh, during Gamergate. Uh, there's not really a great way to have a Law & Order episode made about you. Um, but uh, I kind of <laughs> took that national prominence and, uh, you know, decided to run for United States Congress this year. You look at the uh, you look at the people leading us and you don't know how you could do any worse. So <laughs> that's... Uh, and and, and yeah. we use that term leading very loosely. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, I... Let's keep it to cars. Yes. I'm sure we can have a very fascinating discussion yes. about this. I yes, <laughs> we will keep I, it uh, apolitical. But that's uh, yeah. No, that's I mean it's it's hard because the this right now I, people are going to hear this afterward. But tonight is the night of the special election in Alabama, yep. so yep. that's weighing on us. And it's um, <laughs> no matter where you you stand on it. Uh, Anyway, I don't, we don't need to be super apolitical. Yeah, I think yeah, people yeah. listen to the show know yeah, where I mean, we stand. We'll, we'll, we, we will get into a little bit of politics uh, later on. You know, when we talk about um, certain, you know, some of the some of the issues that face you know the the automotive industry and and travel, you know, drivers and and passengers in the coming years. Absolutely. But we'll we'll come back to that later. Um, uh, so, well, I have I have a super important question actually. Okay. Um, so Brianna, you have uh, a Porsche nine eighty one. I do. Which. Uh, and and you are a fellow Massachusetts resident. I am. So, yes. Um, I I need to know <laughs> what is your favorite driving road around here. Oh my gosh, there are so you know I don't just drive cars. I also race motorcycles. So uh, there's a ton of stuff that is uh, out. It's it's uh, over. It's over near Homer Street, uh, sort of in, um, oh God, I'm sorry, y'all, I've been up for 15 hours. Uh, yeah, let's just keep it over here to Lexington. So there's some really great roads over here at Lexington. So if you drive in between uh, the Burlington Mall, this entire uh -huh. area out here is twisty roads and there's no one around at night. I have never seen a cop out past one o'clock. Yeah, oh, so, especially over yeah. there. Like, yeah, I mean, just the rich people go to bed yeah. and then... Um, 
you know, so that like that's like Route 225 yep. and, and that kind of stuff. All of that. Up, up, up. That whole area yeah. from Toys R Us and driving like, uh, you know, the Office Evolution parking lot there. It's just it's perfect. I love it. Excellent. We're we're a little further west, and I I, uh, I think you can have a really good time on like Route 117, Route 62. Oh, so there come, we go. Come head toward Worcester, and that that's uh, sorry, Sam, to leave you out, but when you're in the Boston area, I'll show you some worries. good roads. We'll trade our secret routes like after the show, like where we really have, know there yeah. are no cops. <laughs> I mean, I and I have had those questions, and I'm like, I don't want to give you my secrets. Yeah. I don't want all you people on my roads. <laughs> and and you have to be like, you have to have some sense about you. Like you can't completely be irresponsible because somebody's going to get hurt. No, so it's true. You, you kind of like have to keep your road to like, you enjoy it, but not, not be irresponsible. But so anyway, yeah, this is, this is something I have to say. The beauty of Boston, this really is the beauty of Boston that, uh, from like 7am until 7pm hell roads don't drive here. It's a miserable <laughs> time. I, I, I'm like, if you're in a car with the, with the standard, you're going to hate it. Uh, but everyone goes to bed and it's just like a zombie apocalypse ghost town after midnight here. So a uh, true story. So many nights I get off work and I will just go drive around till two in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's working for, you know, film studios and advertising and stuff. It's sometimes you get off of those late shoots and you're just like, I am the last man on earth. Yep. And this is wonderful. <laughs> amazing. Um, so, all right, let's let's keep. Sounds kind of like downtown San Francisco on a Sunday afternoon. You know, I was I was there a few weeks ago and just trying to find a place to get some dinner. It's like everything, the whole place was shut down. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, everybody leaves, right? Like all the the tech people leave during the weekend, and <laughs> yeah, it must be. Are uh, are they all they're all they're all stuck in their little cubicles somewhere in some game studio, <laughs> you know, slaving away for for some entrepreneur that's going to eventually get rich and run for Congress. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I hope you, you make all your staff people. work all night while you go drive your drive your fancy H- car. Hand to God. Um, you know, I put my team through crunch for the for the very first game we shipped and I swore that I would never do that to my team again. You can't do it ethically. And if you love and respect the professionals you work with, uh, we just pushed our ship date back repeatedly for the next game because it's it's not healthy and it's not tenable. Well, and you don't want to ship a bad product either. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen and, and we talk about that with the car sometimes. And I make the joke like uh, even talking about Tesla specifically, it's like they're, they're doing the software model, their design ship test. And that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, you can't, you can't be doing that on a regular basis. Do you guys know Tesla engineers? Because I've never personally met a former Tesla engineer that has anything positive to say about that company. Uh, yeah. The, the, the same, the same is true here. Yeah. I, you know, I've known a number of people who have previously worked at Tesla and um, you know, they've generally, uh, they've, Let's just say they were glad to be out of yep, there. That's why I hear. Uh, but then again, you know, I've I've heard a lot of the same things about a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, but but particularly Tesla, yeah. you know, just because Elon is such a hard person to work for. Yeah, that's why I hear too. I hear it's like when he's thinking about your project, it's all systems go, it's awesome, you've got the resources you need, and then it's years of like wandering in the desert between that. Yeah, you you you. Well, I think you you definitely don't want to be the bright shiny object in in Elon's uh, field of view. Um, you you might be better off you know wandering in the desert um, than than having him sleeping next to your desk in a in a sleeping bag. I hear that too. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, so, you know, usually the, the way the way the show works, you know, we start off talking about what we're driving and, you know, for Dan and I, it's usually, you know, some different press car every week. Um, why don't you why don't you tell start off by telling us what you're driving right now? But, you know, I just bought this, uh, you know, Porsche Cayman uh, 981 three weeks ago. So, uh, you know, I have had Is there a, a new one or a used one. Uh, it's a used one. So I wanted the flat six. So, you know, like it's the 718 now. So I wanted the the flat six. So I, uh, I found one with uh, 44,000 miles on it. Uh, and I got it for a little bit over 36, which I was very, very, very pleased with. Um, so yeah, I, I have been just looking all over for the right car and, you know, I just, I know it's like the same car internally, but I'm just not interested in the Boxster. I'm not a fan of convertibles, especially living here in New England. And I really wanted a driver's car. Do you know what I mean? Like a little, Oh, we know exactly what you mean. Something that would just, um, really suck me in just just take me to another world and i was in i know you have the lotus lease and i was really really uh, no really... I, I wish i had one. Oh, did you not <laughs> okay I thought no you that, that yeah. was that, that was a press car that you know I, I reviewed back in i think 2009 or something yeah an exige actually oh wow uh, oh i had i had an exige press car i had a couple of them oh my that car gosh. is bonkers and it's it's absolutely a driver's car but it's hard to live with and yeah. and uh, you know i i think the the Cayman is also, uh, especially the flat six models where, you know, they don't have as much torque. They don't have as much horsepower, yep. but you you get in it and just suddenly everything, everything works and you, you don't care Yeah, because it's just so great to drive. I, I think it's because my first really, really fast car was not a car. It was a motorcycle. It's a Honda CBR 600 RR. And the thing is with motorcycles any like a motorcycle is going to be practically any car it's racing right yeah. so the entire skill with motorcycles like when you're really out riding around it's like how flexible is your body so you can get your knee closer and closer to the ground when you turn it's all about the turning that is how you win races in motorcycles so for me when i got a car um yeah yeah i could get like a, a car with a lot of horsepower to me what i enjoy is like downshifting around corner and picking the right moment of the apex and, you know, just picking that right moment to put it back in gear and slam on the accelerator. That to me is the skill of driving. And that is what I find rewarding with the, you know, with the sport, frankly. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I drive a 27 year old Miata, yeah. you know, because I, I can, you know, cause one, one of the things, you know, with modern cars is that they tend to have such high levels of performance that, you know, when you get into an environment where you can really exercise them, they're amazing. You know, you get them on a track. They're just fantastic. But so often on public roads, um, you know, doing that, you know, will either put others at risk or get you thrown in jail. Yeah. Um, neither of which is a particularly appealing uh, concept to me. So, you know, um, I, that's what, you know, with, with the Miata, I get, you know, all those same, you know, that very direct feeling. You know, but it's at a at a power level and grip levels that are low enough where I can I can actually explore those limits, you know, and explore the car, you know, work on my car control, but do it at speeds that, you know, aren't going to aren't going to get me into into crazy problems. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned the Lotus, you know, and back in 
in the early 90s, you know, my first engineering job when I got out of school, uh, my first full time engineering job out of school um, was working with, uh, with GM, you know, their, their Delco division on ABS systems on ABS for the Lotus Esprit and the Lotus Elan, the M100 Elan. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the first time I got into an Esprit Turbo and drove that on the on the <laughs> test track, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. And the thing is, in 1990, that was a car with a, a four, four cylinder, 2.2 liter four cylinder turbo with like 220 horsepower, which, you know, was at in 1990 was actually a, a really amazing amount of power. That's pretty good for I, an engine that yeah. size. I mean, the, the analog for that is the five liter Mustang that made 225. Yeah. And, you know, but the, you look, you look at it now and, you know, 220 horsepower, eh, that, that's, that's okay. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. But you know, that's, that's nothing to get excited about anymore. Definitely. You know, but it, it was, it was, you know, cars like that were so much fun to drive because, and especially the Esprit, you know, the, the Esprit was in many ways a deeply flawed car, but you know, it was it, a Lotus. Well, yes. <laughs> so those, those two do kind of tend to go hand in hand, but you know, if you can drive it well, it was so yeah. incredibly satisfying. I think we're going to have a real existential crisis uh, in the car industry soon with the, you know, the, the, the avalanche of electrics. I'm a hundred percent for it. You know, one of my, my real pillars uh, in running for Congress is we've got to move over to renewable energy and, you know, moving our fleet of cars to electric vehicles makes a lot of sense. But I think that we're about to have an existential crisis because, you know, when you have a, an engine hooked up to every wheel of the car and you've got that battery down low, you know, we're going to be talking about, about a McLaren later in the show. And it's just, it's a beautifully engineered car. And I hate that like an average electric vehicle can accelerate almost as quickly as this, this petrol car. So I think that, you know, in that existential crisis, I think in the next decade, we're going to see zero to 60 speeds really become something that you take for granted, even getting under four seconds. And I think it's really going to push a lot of us to think a lot more about handling, about cornering, you know, about torque. I think that's going to be a lot more of where the hobby goes. You know, I, I hope, I hope it pushes a lot of us to think about skill yeah. and craft and uh, <laughs> training. Yeah. Um, At least until it's all taken over by autonomous cars. Oh, yeah. Well, that is, so that's the thing, right? You're gonna, it's going to fork in, in two different ways. And, and you're seeing that in other, other sort of areas of life, right? Uh, even down to uh, some of the, the ridiculousness, right? Like um, coffee. Let's take coffee for an example. Every, Everybody drinks coffee, except for those of you who don't. And, uh, you know, most people don't think about it, right? Like, they'll go and they'll get their coffee at, like, Starbucks. Well, uh, fine. There's this other level of geekdom that I have achieved. And it's, it's <laughs> like, you, you think about it enough, you're like, oh, I wonder what makes that tick. Like, why, do, why, do, why is it like wine? Why do they talk about these different blends and the roasts and all that? And then you get to this point where you're like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get into the craft. I'm going to roast my own coffee. And so you just like, I think there's going to be people who, you know, they, they may dip into the automated car thing and, and just sort of at a certain point, they'll get fascinated enough by it to be like, oh, wait, 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 what was this? What did this used to be like? You know, we've got people going into uh, sort of hobby farming for this or, subs, you know, subsistence farming for the same kind of idea. Like, you know, when modern life is all packaged up, 
it it could just be really really dull and and just you know when you start to think about what you're doing it makes you want to to peel back the layers of the onion i'm using lots of weird metaphors i'm sorry (laughs) Uh, but it's just like you get to a certain point where it intrigues you enough where you're like uh, okay um let's let's dive into that and check out the craft of it It, almost like if you like music you might wind up picking up the guitar or something like you know what makes that tick so i i hold out hope no i definitely think you're right i just think um I, you know, you look at the trends of auto sales in the United States with the dominance of crossovers, you know, SUVs just taking up more and more of the market. I mean, clearly there's a generation and, you know, frankly, it's a lot of women in my generation too. Like the SUVs came out where a lot of us started having kids in the 90s, right? Uh, and kind of marketing on that idea of, oh, you're above it all, you're safe. And that's really dominated the car market. Like we are really seeing a bifurcation where most people kind of do want a luxury-esque vehicle to just kind of separate them from it all. And that's, it's yeah. a it's a consumer dynamic that's, it's not going to change, you know? It's and not going it, away. It's okay. I mean, yeah. when, you, when you, especially like around here, when you think about it, it's, it's not bad to uh, sit in a nice place to sit. <laughs> when you've got yeah, to I mean, grind for, through for traffic, people, the, the the act of commuting to work is such a is such an incredibly unpleasant experience. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you're stuck in stop and go traffic. You know, it's it's not an environment where you actually want to drive anyway. Right. It's you know not you know when you're going ten miles an hour. I mean, does it matter? You know, you you you. That's the kind of place where you want to have a nice, nice relaxing place to kind of shut the world out. You know. Uh, and and just you know sit back and, and just cruise to work you know and eventually you get there and you know if if that means you know I mean when I when I was commuting you know from from my home to to Dearborn or Detroit for previous jobs you know I would have loved to have had an autonomous car for that <laughs> right. ride because you know it was it was a half hour forty five minutes of just you know cruise down the freeway you know there there was nothing to it I mean there was no skill involved in doing it and I would have just as soon been able to you know just shut off and, you know, read a book, do my email, whatever, you know, before I get to work. Well, I mean, I see people doing that every day, Sam. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although I, I mean, but I, I actually like, this is one of the reasons why I really like getting some of the high end German cars uh, is they have really good uh, uh, dynamic cruise control mm-hmm. and they will follow a line of stop and go traffic and they have really comfortable seats. Sometimes they massage <laughs> and, and excellent audio systems. And sometimes Mercedes they have is excellent. Yeah. At the, the Mercedes massage, massage seats are dope. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever driven one? Uh, Marie? No, no, no. I have not. Oh, if, if you get a chance to get into, you know, a, a higher end E class or S class, um, you know, with, with the massaging seats, <laughs> uh, just try it out. It's, it's absolutely worth it. And you'll, you'll spend many minutes, you know, just going through the menus, you know, trying out all the different massage patterns. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. I did Until that. you find one that, that, that you like, but, uh, it is a pretty amazing experience. It has well, and, nothing to do with the act of actually driving. No, but it actually keeps you more alert. 
because it promotes yeah, a long road trip. It is helpful. I mean, I know yeah. it's not the same thing, but uh, you know, when I was restoring my Audi TT Gen One, at one point, uh, it spent like three weeks at an Audi specialist dealer, like fixing some computer problems, and they gave me a very nice, like modern A4 rental at the time, like for free. And yeah, I spent, I drove all over the state in that, and just for me personally, I'm not, I'm not saying everyone should feel like I do, but. I just found it the most intolerable, cluttered, over-engineered experience I'd ever seen in my life. Like I'm in this car with this really, really powerful engine. And I counted the number of buttons for the interface. And I think it was like 70 <laughs> buttons like yeah. for to do all these different things. And yeah, it's like you said, like absolutely lovely chairs and dynamic, you know, right. cruise control. But for me, it's like I'm not even willing to like give up like an, a manual transmission. <laughs> so when you start getting you. all that, it's just um, yeah, my husband's like that. He he has a Dodge Challenger, and he's utterly not interested in like any of the skill of driving. He wants a comfortable car that makes a lot of noise and will like go very fast when he slams on the accelerator. And yeah, that's, that's the Challenger. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what he wants. <laughs> that's what he wants. It's, so, uh, and it but does you, very well. Yes, it does. You know, and and you'll find that the those like 70 buttons in the A4 they're they're taking those away and replacing them with a touchscreen which is worse. Yes. I'm curious, <laughs> have, you, have you driven a Tesla? No, I have not. Oh, it, you know, the the first time I got into a Model S, you know, I, I was looking around, you know, first thing I, I sat down in the car and I'm trying to figure out well where the hell's the start button? <laughs> and it turns out there isn't one. They, they didn't even bother with that, you know, it's just if you have the fob on you, you sit in and you put it in drive, you know, tap the, the stock on the right hand side of the steering column to down to go to drive and you go. That's it. Oh, you I don't know, I don't like that. There's not enough gatekeeping. No. It's like the, the modern BMWs that they don't shut the hell off. Yeah. <laughs> you, well, like, and, and then, you know, in the Model 3, that, you know, that's coming out now, you know, the if you want to change the intermittent wiper speed, you have to go through the touchscreen to do it. They don't even give you physical oh, controls for that, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. That is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've driven simulations of them in uh, you know Forza. It's I mean it's a great car. It's very competitive. Like as far as being a, a, a you know a, a race car, like uh, but does well, it, it's it's wicked fast a quarter mile right, at a time, right? But does it give me thrill to look at? Does it make me feel joy? Um, I just have to be honest. I I I, I think they're ugly. I, I think they're utilitarian and you know, when they get around to like making another roadster at under a hundred thousand dollars, like I would definitely take a look at that because I think EV vehicles are important, but I just, I, I personally can't have any passion for a car that ugly in my opinion. So sorry. I can't, <laughs> can't disagree with no, that. Okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so you're uh, you're driving. Uh, apparently, apparently, you had a little incident with your uh, with your Cayman y'all, yesterday. Y'all, <laughs> I gotta tell you, this 23 year old kid that was learning to drive. I was literally. It's, there you go. 23, 23 learning to drive. Learning to drive. Come I found this out. And I called the insurance company today because they told me his dad was very upset with him. Um, so Not I bad. am. I am. I am. So. I'm an engineer, right? I love redundancies and I love checking my work. That is like in the DNA of an engineer. So I bought this car from a dealer 
And, you know, because it's very hard to find Caymans. It's not a very popular car, unfortunately, or at least the, you know, flat six, uh, you know, revision of it, uh, you know, Gen 2 Cayman. Uh, so I got this and I started looking into the records of my Cayman. And I'm like, well, they told me they did the 40,000 mile service. And it says this here, but where can I actually find records showing that they like changed out the engine filters and the spark plugs and did it all? And I looked into it and found out they had completely lied to me. Uh, whoever owned this car before me has basically just been doing oil changes. So I took the car to like a, a really big special. Specialist here in wait, Boston. wait, wait. You're, yeah. sp- you're supposed to change the oil in an engine? Yes, you are. That's all. It wasn't right. done with the oil it had. Right. No, they, they, <laughs> oh, God. They, they had really blown it on this. Um, so I took it to a specialist uh, and I left my 40,000 mile service and I'm like, yes, clean bill of health. This car is in excellent shape. I can just have it wonderful from here on out. And I'm going to treat this car like a princess. And this 23 famous last words smacks into the back of my car. And did uh, we're gonna get the estimate? But I'm gonna guess it's about ten thousand dollars of damage. You okay? So, so what I saw from the picture yes. was uh, one of the rear light clusters, yep. and the uh, the bumper cover was, yes. was scuffed. Was there any other damage to any of the the valance yes. panels or the, up, the quarter panels? Up underneath it, the uh, entire shield underneath it is cracked and broken with pieces of it yep. off. And the spoiler will not go up or down currently. So it's Oh yeah, that's of, an expensive assembly. Yeah, it's all of that. Um so hopefully we'll we'll see how that goes. I was I was pretty upset about that. <laughs> well, you know what? Now now it's over though. Like you've you've christened it officially. Yes. Like once it's, it gets it's had its, its blemish. Now, it's mine. now yep. you can fix it and move on. Now it's mine. Yeah. Can I t- yeah. can I tell you guys that like you're the two people in my life that can understand this. (laughs) So I got this car. It's got the base audio system in it with Bose. And I want to tell anyone out there, if you're thinking about getting a Porsche with the base audio system without uh, CarPlay built in, don't make the same mistake I did and go, oh, well, I'll figure it out after after the fact. I have never seen anything in my life that is as hard as upgrading the stereo in a Porsche. So you've got the the base (laughs) system and then like the PCM, which is Porsche's outdated, terrible navigation system. If you want to get that put in after after the fact, like their official thing, which sucks, it's four thousand dollars. And then if you start looking at going aftermarket, then I've got to like swap out my Bose amplifier and like do deep surgery on the car to like swap out a fiber optic amplifier, which sucks. So, well, I mean, yeah. hey, no highs and lows. It must be Bose. Yeah, no, that's Sorry. it. It sounds terrible. It sounds it's... absolutely horrible. So do not yeah, make no, this mistake. Yeah. Right, but I should say that, like, as much as I throw grenades at Bose, yeah. I've applied to jobs there oh, no. many times. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make them better. You want to make them better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have amazing people and they do have great technology, but I just don't like the way their stuff sounds. Uh, uh, yeah. Moving on. Yes. I, I have a lot of opinions about Bose. We can just continue to just ignore Well, them. <laughs> I will say trying to get a, something to interface with the Bose system in a Porsche will cost me an additional $3,000 on top of my $4,000 stereo. So uh, it's a mess. Y'all want to talk about the McLaren? <laughs> well, before we do that, yes. let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the cars that Dan and I are oh, driving okay. this week. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so, Dan, what do you got? We had a very Hyundai week because I had a 2018 Sonata Limited. Um, 
you know, sometimes you just need a solid classic midsize sedan, right? Um, this is not, it's not a turbo. It's not a hybrid. And it, I mean, it's not even a V6. I don't even think they make. No, you can't a get a V6, V6 in a Sonata but, anymore. Not, not since like 2010. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a really good car. It's comfy. It's roomy. Uh, it's so competent. It's kind of, kind of boring. Uh, bland, you know, and that's not to damn it with faint praise. Although I guess it, it does. Like it, it is totally sort of like car as appliance, right? You <laughs> you get in, you hit the button, it, it it does its thing. But it's a really well thought out car in this class. Um, when you consider the competition, it's against the Fusion, the uh, Accord, the Camry. I, I mean, this is this is like the toughest segment of cars where people are still buying cars. Everything is good. And uh, for years, the Sonata was this player that was had a lot of features. Maybe it was, you know, a little bit bigger. Uh, it was a little bit, you know, nicer equipped if you on paper, you know. Um, but it just, the driving experience didn't quite hold up. That's not the case anymore. I think it actually drives really well. Um, and it's just, you know, it... It's a solid car. And when everybody's gone to CVTs, Hyundai has their own uh, six-speed automatic that's pretty good and smooth and gets out of its own way. Uh, it has the – this one had the uh, 2.4 liter, I think, yeah. uh, four-cylinder, which is plenty of power. I mean, it, there's nothing to complain about here. And in, in limited trim, it has you know leather seats. It has a, a, a moonroof, uh, the dynamic cruise control – Heated steering wheel, heated seats, ventilated seats, uh, nav, the whole Hyundai suite of uh, infotainment, which is pretty good. Um, all told, it rings up at like 32K. For, wow. Yeah. It, and that's, that's, I was astounded. I was like, this has to be a $40,000 car. Yeah. I was watching and, videos of it before this. I mean, it's, they've really brought the quality of Hyundais up since the last time I've looked at them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, over over the last seven or eight years, you know, Hyundai's and Kias have, have become really impressive cars, and I, I I like them a lot. I mean, you know, I mean they're they're for the most part they're not terribly exciting, you know, as you said, but they're you know they work, you know, and they're they're generally a really good value. Yeah, they work, and all of the rough edges that used to be there have been pretty well burnished off, and that's. That, I think that's the impressive thing is, you know, they knew how to build a car that would, you know, fit the size class and you could just dump a bunch of shit in it uh, and, you know, have your spreadsheet winner. But making it actually a good car that rides well, that doesn't float over bumps and isn't too harsh and uh, everything is screwed together pretty well. It doesn't rattle and, and whatever. And you don't see, you know, casting flash on some of the plastics and stuff like that. You know, things that used to be sins. Um they're not there anymore. They they did their homework. They brought in a bunch of people that taught them how to do a really good job, uh, and they aggressively wanted to grow their market share, and, and they did it by making a good product at a great price, and, and that, that continues. Um, I will say that the, the audio system sounds bad. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm trying to look here. I don't think – so this had the ultimate package, which included the the Infinity premium auto, audio system, and I was – Part of the problem with that was I was listening via Bluetooth, and so that recompresses already compressed audio. It just, just doesn't sound good. It's like taking a cheese grater to your ears. Um, but it was also like making the speakers and the doors bottom out and stuff on like 
basey material. Mm. And that, that to me is like, uh, okay, that shouldn't happen anymore. There's, there's plenty of ways to spec a, a driver that doesn't do that. Uh, that's, that's really picky. Um, also the trunk is big, but because it has that coupe like profile, it's hard to get some stuff in and out of it, hmm. you know, boxes and stuff or you're, you're limited by that, that opening. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's the problem with most modern sedans, you know, because of that slope right. rear roof line, you tend to have a really small opening. You know, yeah. Even though there's a big space behind it, there's a small, small opening to get stuff into, yeah. which is why I like hatchbacks and station wagons. Right. Or, or like the, um, the Buick Regal, the, uh, the lift back or yeah. whatever they call it now, a sport back. Right. Where where it looks like a sedan, but it's, you know, it's actually a hatch. It's a hatchback. Yeah. Five door yeah. hatch. So it doesn't it doesn't impress me. someone making a, a good quality car in that class. What what would impress me is, like you said, this is going up against the Accord. And I think of the Accord like a it's it's an appliance. Right. Um, I've I've had an Accord. I've had two of them. They're they're great functional, non-exciting cars that you just barely have to do anything to maintain them, right? Besides like, you know, changing tires and oil and brake pads every now and then. Do you think that the the long-term quality of Hyundai has gotten to a point where it can really compete with that? Uh, Yeah, it certainly seems to. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I I mean, we have some in the family and they've been no more or less troublesome than anything else they've owned in the past. I mean, it's funny too. the same folks that wound up repeat Hyundai buyers were repeat GM buyers through some dark years of GM, <laughs> you know, um, and the Hyundais have been relatively trouble free. Not, not completely, but uh, you know, modern cars are pretty amazing anyway, yeah. but they haven't been, troublesome at, at all and i haven't seen you know one of the things that i used to notice about Hyundai was, was they would rust pretty easy mm-hmm. i haven't seen that kind of stuff even some of the older not too old sonatas had subframe rust issues uh, they seem to have solved a lot of that stuff um what i think y- the difference between something like the sonata even this sonata and the accord is some of the subtle ways, the subtle greatness of the Accord. And I think you may be selling it a little short mm-hmm. because the, the Accord is, it, it is an appliance, but also the, you can drive an Accord in anger. You can drive it like your Porsche. <laughs> yes, right? you can. And and you, just you, ask John Syracuse. Yes. Right. You will notice things that will surprise you like, oh, the steering does load up in the middle of a turn. Like you can feel the weight transfer. It, it, Somebody knew what they were doing when they set this car up. And the, the Sonata is not like that. It's not bad, but it's it's not like that. And that's that's sort of that um, hard to quantify nature that Honda has baked into most of their cars. Even something like the Pilot does it. Uh, and you know, the, another automaker that does that is is Mazda. Um, yeah. They're just they're great to drive. And so, yes, there are appliances, but that doesn't mean that you have to suffer. I think that's because those are cars that have a a racing heritage built into them. You know what I mean? And it's like Mm -hmm. once you develop that technology or you have that department that knows how to tune those things, it it clearly carries over to the rest of the line. So I'm right there with you. Like, this is why, uh, you know, if I'm going to buy like a, you know, an appliance vehicle, it's going to be a Honda. I think they're very well-made products. 
Yeah. yeah. And I mean, what- you know, so Kiro Honda, you know, I mean, his policy was always to rotate, rotate his engineers, you know, through the various motorsports programs that the company was involved in, you know, whether it was, you know, Formula One or endurance racing or, or motorcycles, you know, engineers, most of the engineers would spend at least a couple of years working in motorsports, um, you know, before, before or between, you know, assignments on production programs. Well, it's kind of the same thing that I tell my my folks um, when we're developing um, creative, right? Because most of the creative that we work on is something that a user is going to have to interact with. It's not it, it's not any any longer just like we're putting up pictures and watch this little little movie. It's um, how does this web page work, and how do we get the person to click on the thing that we want them to click on? And what you're doing when you develop that stuff is you're figuring out well what's the you know there's there's a lot of nonsense words for it like you know the, the customer journey and uh, <laughs> you know, but but you do you like you put yourself into that user's shoes and so if you understand what what makes a, a great driving car you're going to put that into every car that you you build and it, it's subtle in hondas it's it's something that you notice it if it's if you know what you're looking for it's it's not in the way if you don't know what you're looking for, where some other cars that are good to drive from a driver perspective, say like a, a, a Challenger, uh, not not the Hellcat, which is its own thing, but like a <laughs> even a Challenger, right? Even a Challenger RT. Yep. Um, you know, so it's got the Hemi. It's powerful. It's a, it's a decent handling car. It's kind of heavy. <laughs> um, it's a handful if you start to get a little rowdy with it. Yeah. It, that's that's not same you know it's it's good in its own right but it like that's a that's a car that sort of lets you know like hey watch it whereas the accord's just like all right cool um no you're dead on like my husband's challenger you got that body roll if you're doing something ridiculous like going you know in a 30 degree turn at 40 miles an hour like you're gonna and i love i love the challenger don't get me wrong i love that car but yeah yeah (laughs) so sam you were also in a a Hyundai product, although it has no Hyundai badging. That's right. Uh, I'm in the uh, the latest edition of the uh, the G80, the G80 Sport, uh, which um, as of last year, you know, we've talked about before. Uh, you know, Genesis was launched in 2009 ish um, as you know Hyundai's luxury model. Uh, you know, it was the Hyundai Genesis, and they had the sedan and the coupe. And last year, they split off Genesis into a brand of its own. Uh, so, you know, Genesis, you know, is to Hyundai as Lexus is to Toyota and Infiniti to Nissan. And, you know, they've uh, they've added uh, the, the sport model to the G80, which is um, the, you know, kind of the, the modern incarnate, the newer incarnation of the original Genesis sedan. And it's really good. I, I like it a lot. Um, you know, it's a four door, um, you know, upper midsize sedan. You know, it's it's really you know it's in the, um, the BMW five series class. Um, so it's huge and heavy. It, it's, it's big and it's heavy, but it's you know you know compared to you know where a five series was twenty years ago. Yes, it's huge. Yeah. Um, this thing was so know. big that when I looked at, it, I'm like. Wow, those are really tiny wheels on it. Like I thought they on were on the like, G eighty. Yeah, I thought they were seventeen inch wheels, and like no, it's like nineteen yeah, inch 21s. wheels. The rest yeah. of the car is just so huge; it tricked me. But you know, when when you see it in person, I mean, it's it's really nicely proportioned. You know, it's got you know, it's got that that sloping you know that coupe look coupe like 
profile, you know, but it's got a fairly long hood and, you know, photos don't really do it justice. It, it actually looks really, it's, uh, it's got a really nice stance to it. Um, you know, and, you know, if what you're looking for is a big comfy sedan that also has, um, you know, pretty decent performance, you know, I mean, the, the, the sport, you know, it has all wheel drive and it's got a 3.3 liter turbo V6 with um, 365 horsepower and 376 foot pounds of torque. And, you know, compared to um, the V8, I mean, you can still get the five liter V8 in a G80, um, which is a perfectly lovely engine. You know, I and, love that. That that's how V8 is fantastic. Yeah. Isn't that perfectly it's, lovely? It's more it's powerful, all- you know, 420 horsepower compared to 365. But, um, you know, it's it's actually got just barely more torque than the, the V6 uh, at 383. But the, the V6 has that low end torque, you know, whereas the the, the, the V8, um, you know, for for a V8, you expect it to feel stronger down low. But in fact, um, you know, it uh, you know, it's it's torque peak comes at 5000 RPM, which, you know, I have nothing nothing against, you know, peakier engines. But it's also really nice to have something that really pulls hard from down low and. And, you know, this, this V6 is really nicely executed, um, you know, and compared to the five series, you know, I mean, you, you recently drove the 530i, Dan, you know, so, I mean, you know how busy and, you know, kind of cluttered, you know, modern BMW interiors have become, uh, you yeah. know, this one, you know, is much cleaner, you know, it's, 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 you know, really nice materials, but, um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have nearly as many buttons as what you'll find in a typical German sedan. Um, and it, well, I mean, you've driven the G80, you know what it's like, you know, it, it, I think it's, you know, it's, it's well laid out, you know, it's well organized, it's roomy, um, you know, and, you know, with the snow we had uh, yesterday, you know, it, uh, it does, you know, with, with all wheel drive, it, it does really well in the snow as well, but yeah. It, you know, it's funny you, you were talking earlier about, you know, how nice it is to use adaptive cruise control, you know, when you're running in traffic. And um, this one, you know, I, again, you know, I mean, I've had this experience on numerous occasions before, um, you know, and this is not something that's unique to this car. But, um, you know, driving back from an event in Detroit yesterday with um, with uh, Mary Barra, the CEO of GM. Not that I was driving with her, but I was going to say, wait, you would you give her like give give her a lift? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) uh, There there was a a automotive press association um, meeting, and and she was uh, they were doing a fireside chat with her uh, with Michelle Krebs uh, from Cox Automotive. Um, Anyway, coming back from that event, uh, you know, it was snowing pretty well last night, and after about fifteen minutes of driving in in traffic. the uh, warning lamp came up in the cluster saying, you know, that the adaptive cruise control was disabling, um, you know, because the sensor yeah. was covered up with snow. And, oh. you know, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is this is a common problem. And this is this is an issue that um, engineers are going to have to to sort out, you know, before we can start you know, before we can actually have automated cars that can drive in a lot of different environments, because you know, it, you, you have to keep the sensors clean. I mean, just like, you know, for us, you know, if we can't see through the windshield, you know, you've got to have the windshield wipers going. If you can't see through the windshield, you can't drive. Well, if the sensors are covered with snow or salt or, or ice, then you're not going anywhere. Yeah. And so, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, this, this is, you know, obviously in this case, you know, I was able to take over and, you know, com- you know, f- finish driving on my own, 
uh, or I could have pulled over and, you know, wiped the snow and, and slush off the, uh, the radar sensor. Uh, but I didn't feel like doing that. And so, you know, I had, I just kept on going on my own without, without these driver assist systems. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, I feel like that's, just, uh, there's an elegant solution somewhere for that. Like, uh, is it as simple as just em- embedding a, a filament or a few filaments within that plastic sensor assembly that they're just resistive filaments and they just they get warm enough when well, the, temp- you know, the, the, the filament would work in this case, you know, where it was, you know, snow or ice buildup. Yeah, because it but, just heats up the whole thing so that it just the but it, ice but it's not going to help you with salt spray. Mm, no yeah. salt. You can know, it's, to, right. Today, you know, today it was, um, you know, well, the snow was cleared off. But, you know, they had salted the roads. And so, you know, you get the salt spray on there and, and you know what it's like on your headlights. You know, after driving on a salted road for 10 minutes, your headlights are basically useless at that point. And it's the same thing with, you know, with the sensors. Like the sensors still can't see through the salt. Yeah. Um, and in fact, um, you know, one of the, the in addition to the, the radar sensor for the adaptive cruise and the camera sensor for the, the lane keep assist, you know, there's also a, a string of ultrasonic sensors around the car, just like Tesla uses on their cars, which they say, you know, is all they need. You know, that and the cameras is all they need to do fully automated driving. And that's bullshit. But, um, you know, the, the salt, the salt buildup on the on the ultrasonic sensors was causing the the, the uh, park assist proximity warning to go off hmm. continuously. So I had to turn that off. Because even though I was driving down the road and there was nothing around me, just the salt that had built up on yeah. there was causing that to, to be triggered. Yeah. And uh, Bree, I just yeah. dropped a picture of the, the front of the car that I took last night when I got home. Oh so goodness. you can see what the um, what the uh, what the sensor looks like all covered in snow. Yeah, that's a ooh, that's a real mess right there. I think, you know, I I've seen a lot of discussion about the need for some sort of um I, I don't know how to describe it, almost a swarm technology. Like if you're out there driving, and if we really bring uh, you know, self driving cars to fruition, it shouldn't just be communicating with itself in the road. We need some kind of protocol that's dynamic and also secure in like an infosec sense uh, to let cars like share each other's sensors, right? Because it's vehicle to vehicle communications. Exactly. Like we need some kind of open standard that will work across the industry. And uh, I just, I, there is, there actually is one. Is there? Okay. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a standard that's been developed. And in fact, um, you know, last December, you know, over the last couple of several years, uh, NHTSA, the national highway traffic safety administration was, was working on putting together uh, a mandate to, you know, to require vehicle vehicle to vehicle communications on uh, on all new vehicles. And last December, you know, they issued the the final or, you know, the the NPRM, the notice of proposed rulemaking. OK. Um, and, you know, the comment period started after that. And um, now, you know, uh, under the current administration, NHTSA has gone dark and it's unlikely that 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 final rule will actually be enacted, um, you know, which is which is unfortunate because, you know, Automated vehicles, you know, don't need um, vehicle-to-vehicle communications to operate. I mean, they they need to be able to operate, you know, in isolation, you know, just with the sensors and what they can see around the vehicle. Sure. But um, you know, V2V communications can really can extend the reach of the sensors. I mean, the sensors can see, you know, your long-range radar and lidar uh, can see out about 200, 250 meters. Um, you know, but they're limited to line of sight. Yeah. So if there's a truck in front of you. 
the sensors can't see what's on the other side of that truck. You know, they can't see what's around the corner. You know, when you're coming up to an intersection, there's a building on the corner. And that's where V2V, you know, can extend their situational awareness to things that the sensors cannot see. Um, and so there's there's a lot of a lot of benefits to adding that in. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, I think that needs to be in, in all vehicles going forward. But unfortunately, you know, it's unlikely to get enacted in the foreseeable future. So, I mean, you know, I, yeah, and I'm, I'm right there with you. I've read that about the, you know, requiring the sensors the same way we're about to require rear backup cameras, you know, in all mm-hmm. cars. But the actual protocol, like establishing an open source framework for that, like what the what it's actually telling each other and what the protocol are of like how many feet back you should be under X driving conditions. Have we started to work? That well, out? yeah, because that's yeah, the yeah. I mean, there there, there are yeah. there are protocols for the communications, you know, how, like the messaging right, protocols right, and and what protocol. the what the messages yeah. are and yeah. what the what the technology is and what the security mechanisms are. Uh, certificate based security system. Um, you know, as far as how that gets incorporated into automated vehicles, you know, um, you know, and you know what kind of spacing you want, you know, between vehicles. That that has not been done yet. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that we actually need that part of it. Um, but you know, we need, we need vehicles to share information amongst each other. And, you know, so if a car going down the road hits a patch of ice and triggers the stability control, it should blast out a warning to the cars behind it saying, Hey, you know, there's a slippery road conditions ahead, you know, or if a vehicle has to do an emergency brake maneuver, you know, to let other vehicles know, Hey, you know, emergency braking, you know, and alert the drivers, or if it's automated, you know, to have the vehicle slow, start to slow down. Um, or, you know, for example, if you're coming up to a blind curve and there's a car stopped on the other side, you know, beyond the line of sight on, on that curve, um, you know, you want to alert, other cars coming up that there's, um, you know, there's a car stopped here and, you know, you should start, you know, slowing down uh, before you hit that curve, you know, before the point where you can actually see the vehicle, you can start slowing down um, so that you can have smoother control and, you know, work better, you know, if the road is slippery, that sort of thing. So all those sorts of things, that's all been done. That's been going on for the last 10 years. And there's actually a big pilot program here and, in Ann Arbor, there's been several thousand vehicles that have been testing this stuff, including my wife's car for for uh, three and a half years, uh, equipped with these uh, these radios to to do this communications. Uh, but now it looks like it's probably going to go by the wayside. Well, I I think someone needs to run for Congress and fix that. Right. I, I would say, you know, I think that brings into you know the. Like you could have false positives. You could have someone out there, mm-hmm. with a, you know, transmitter, like saying, "Oh, oh absolutely, I see roads ahead." So that's that is. It's just my nature. Like you know, you're an engineer too. Yeah. Like no. No. That's all that's stuff out. That's the fun part. So. Yeah. No. You're you're absolutely right. I mean the, I mean, and, and all this technology has the the potential to be abused sure. uh, by bad actors. Yep. And so, you know, cybersecurity is, is really important. Yeah. Um, Getting back to the Genesis, though, I think really great cars. <laughs> I think really nice. great cars. Thank you. I'm a professional. Yeah. I think really great cars. Like, if you look at my Audi You should TT, podcast for a living. I yeah. love my Audi TT. And the, the distinctive feature in that are, like, these uh, aluminum accent rings that are everywhere in the car, like the mm-hmm. air conditioner, the vent. What I love about this Genesis is it's really gone with this this bronze motif. 
And I just freaking love it. And I, I don't think this is like a gorgeously styled car, in my opinion. But I do think that is a very distinctive design. And I think it I, really yeah. works for this class. It's very, it's handsome. Um, it's almost, I, I wouldn't say it's it's groundbreaking. It's almost derivative. Um, but when you, when you see the evolution of the original Genesis, um, back when it was Hyundai branded and now to the, the Genesis, uh, G80, G90, they're, they're finding their feet in terms of, of making a car that is, it's got those classically beautiful cues, you know, the sculpting in the side, the, the, uh, just the proportions that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good looking car if it, also, sometimes you can catch it looking like one of those like insurance company anonymous cars that are in there. There, it's like it's been debadged with Photoshop, and you don't know what it is. Um, you know, but they they do a really good job of making a, a large luxury sedan that's that's got some performance leanings on a rear wheel drive based chassis that that also. You know, it doesn't necessarily have that brand cachet of a Mercedes um, or even a Lexus, but it definitely runs with that crowd. Um, and you know and, what else? This car cost $57,000. Right. And that's what I was going to say yeah. is and they, that's how they they pitched it uh, when they when they introduced the second generation Genesis, uh, which is this car. Um, they made it a point to say, you know, it's it's not. It's not for those people who really want a BMW but can't afford it. Like, no, it's it's not necessarily this driver car. Like, there may be some of that, but it's more like the the person who's had had those cars. Like, they've done that, and they want the experience without the hassle. Because you know, I mean, you went through it, Brianna, with the you know restoring an Audi, and you know, if you were to own a BMW or a Mercedes, like at a certain point. They're they're lovely cars, but at a certain point, the high end stuff turns into a sort of a ticking time bomb. Yeah. So if you if you accept that and you go, you know what, I, I'm just going to get something that's just as comfortable, just as well equipped, drives pretty much just as well um, until you really start to to push it, or if you get into sort of the really rare, you know, models like an M5 or something like that, that's kind of rarefied air. Um, and I'm going to save a boatload of money and I'm just going to trade it in in four or five years anyway. Uh, yeah, 57 grand is, I mean, you can you can push a, a much lesser car up to the same kind of price level. So, that, you know, we, we're talking about Hyundai's value this time around. Mm. Yeah. I don't think I could justify that much on this car, but I can understand. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you buy it used. Yeah. You, you buy it used when its resale yeah, value is dropped like a stone. Yeah, yeah, I, can yeah. See, I can see that. <laughs> My two-year-old one for 30 grand. So, you know, you're all set. I love it. So, you know, speaking of rarefied air, uh, the, uh, the the folks over at McLaren have a new product oh. that they just launched. Did you see the fishy in the door? Oh. I want to, the, the, if you look at the, the picture of the side profile, look at the door and you'll see a gray fish. What? Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got to watch. I wasted I, way too much time today staring at pictures of this beautiful car. It's it's oh. just in the in the official like the the somewhat dark uh shot here. I'll I'll grab it. It's the lead image off the um uh Motor Trend um post about oh, it. Oh yeah. Okay. 
I see it. It, it looks it looks it, like it, a gray sturgeon. It, yeah. it, it, does, it does look like there's a fish there. So when it when it's backlit, you know the the profile of the the cut between the cutout and the center console in there. Yeah, it does look like there's a fish there. It totally looks like. Oh a my fish. god. That's my favorite feature of the car, and it's totally unintentional. And I'm not the only one who noticed. I, I learned that because uh, McLaren Twitter lost its friggin' mind when this thing came out. Um, the, most people hate this car, from what I, I can get. It's, 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 it's not a pretty car. Yeah, but I mean, look, the, the, the Kunchak was not pretty. Either. That's true. Uh, but, was, but this, you know, I mean... This, I think this, from from what we've seen of this thing, you know, it's aptly named. You know, they named it for Ayrton Senna. You know, the yep. the probably the greatest F1 driver that ever lived, or you know, one of the greatest race car drivers that ever lived, um, and you know, died way too soon. And you know, he won you know three championships with McLaren. Um, and you know, to to honor him, you know, with this car, you know, they they've taken. The base of the the new 720s, yep. and they've stripped it down. You know, really lightweight. You know, add more power. You know, so they, they've taken the Colin Chapman approach of you know, um, you know, simplicate and add lightness. You know, and it's you know, 789 horsepower, and it, they're they're only building 500 of these. Um, and I'm sure they're all sold out yeah, long ago. Definitely carbon fiber, everything. Like if mm-hmm. you're watching videos in the interior of the car, it's like places you didn't even think they could put carbon fiber. It's all carbon and, fiber. And the yeah. seats, it's like I mean, I've seen you know racing seats that just suck you in before. This is like a plastic U that you sit in with a little bit of padding, so you don't like break your your parts of your body when you're breaking pretty hard. pretty much yeah. like the kind of seats that that mr senna yes. uh, sat in in his race cars Absolutely. well they say the you know it's it's legalized for the street but it's not sanitized yes yes i, for I love it. that quote so this yeah. is this is what i love about the design of this car if you look at um if you look at a car like a you know ferrari um you know 488 that is a car where a designer sat down in autocad and made an utterly gorgeous shape like just a perfect shape and everything came from there what i what i like about this mclaren is it's the opposite of that everything in this car like the form serves the function of what it's going to be so it's got like this these huge unbelievably ugly like air scoops for the engine right (laughs) or like the wheels the way the wheels are cut out it doesn't really serve a function it it really looks like a car where you just glued a bunch of random pieces onto the car all around it but really for me it it adds up to something i think is is esoteric and beautiful in a way i don't think we allow designs to be anymore I really like the fact that it has clear panels in the door. Yes. I think that's yeah. that's yes. neat. Um, I, I think it's so hard to judge one of these cars from pictures, which is how we all judge them. Because um, we so rarely ever get to see something like this. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like, because um, there's there's a lot of cars I really dislike the way they look in pictures. Like the Ferrari F50 is is one of them. Like I just I just think it's hideous. And I honestly was no fan of the F40 for a long time, and and now. I think the F40 is one of the greatest Ferraris ever made. And and part of that is the fact that it was Enzo's last car. Um, But when you see them in person, they take on like, 
they, they take on a life. You know, they're they're living and breathing, even though they're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you you well, get up actually, close. In, 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 in many respects, they you know they are. You know, I mean they they breathe in air. You know, and they they consume carbon based products. You know, to to generate energy. Yeah. You know, yeah. much like we do. Yep. But you you get like that. You get the sense of scale, which is really important that you don't get from photos. Photos have this tendency to sort of flatten everything out. Mm-hmm. So um, you really like they're and especially press photos. They're 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 beautiful pictures, but to see the car in in the light of day uh, and be you know six inches from those crazy side scoops to be able to look down in there and see what's in there. Like, I don't know. The more I look at it, the more it's, it's been very carefully fussed over. There's a lot of details. Everything seems very functional. Um, which is the, I mean, it's the point. Um, I can't, I can't work up any hate for it. I don't think it's classically beautiful, but I, I mean, I think it's, it's very intriguing and I'm sure it performs astoundingly well because that's what mclarens do yeah uh and you know I'm, I'm sure that this thing will set some ridiculously fast time at the ring you know probably you know getting under 640 or something you know maybe even 630 who knows the for me the the worst aspect the thing that i dislike the most about it is it has a damn screen in it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, come I on. That screen too. It's such a bad screen, too. Like, it really looks yeah. like you glued an iPad Pro into the middle of this yep. huge car. It's terrible. Or, or, maybe, or maybe a Volvo Census screen. Yeah. Something it does like kind that. of look like that, doesn't it? Oh, it's I, it does. I mean, it, there's like, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the rest of it, and, and cars in this sort of echelon, um, they're all kind of different to operate. Like I, I think that if you were to sit in um, one of the Lamborghinis or, or Ferraris that have the the automated transmissions, you you stare at all the buttons and be like, how do I put it in drive? <laughs> you know, and this is very much the same thing. Like you have to learn what all the idiosyncratic controls are. Um, but I, I don't think having a screen in there is is helpful. I think it's going to make a already sort of a, a car that's that demands respect. Um, that much harder to to manage, but maybe because it's so track focused, it's it's not going to be a big deal. I don't I don't know. Well, I, I find it curious that they you know they put some of the controls like the engine stop start button and the you know the fan on the ceiling, yeah, you know, above the, the mirror, yeah. Because it's like an airplane. That's just cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm sold on it. I love this design, and I think it's a uh, it's a it's a very it's a very worthwhile like bearer of one of the most important names in F1 racing. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. And it's only a million dollars. I mean, you know, yeah. oh, piece of cake. You know, it's only going to appreciate, right? So it's a million dollars now. It's a, what a bargain. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the the F1 was a million dollars, you know, 20 odd years ago. And, you know, now they're, you know, they're going for 10, you know, 13, 14 million dollars. Yeah. In the I, most recent auctions. The F1 is one of those cars like that. That's one of those those cars that gets stored away in your memory banks like that. That is um, like the F1, the Miura, same same kind of thing, like. Those are just icons uh, to me as, as a, like a car enthusiast, um, and, you know, and another, another story about, you know, how old I am, you know, b- back in 1993, we were, um, you know, the company I was working for at that time, we were doing some development work at Myra in England, which is a track uh, north of Birmingham in England. 
and um, you know it's where a lot of the British car makers go to do their do their testing. And McLaren was doing the development work on the F1 at the time. And you know every you know we about three or four times a week we'd see them come out there with one of the prototypes and seeing this thing running around the track there. You know, before it was in in full production, it was just amazing. And I got to one day, you know, walking up to the control tower to sign in before heading up to the track. You know, it was parked there with the the engine cover open, and you just see all this gold foil like yeah. the, the oh. engine compartment. You know, to to radiate the heat away. Oh, it was just God. amazing. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But see, like even even the Senna, though, I I feel like it it got the the short end of the stick when Twitter went crazy about it. I mean, look at the side shot that's that's there as part of the the press photos where you've got the the front wheel arch. This it's like this thin little little tendril, and then there's there's a giant air channel behind it. Like I, I mean, again, you see the car in person, it's going to impress you a lot more than just looking at pictures on the internet, but. I, yeah. I guess that that's that's true yeah, for well, so many I mean, things. The, a, a lot of the the details, you know, the design details about this thing are, you know, if you've looked at any modern um, Le Mans prototypes, you know, it'll look very familiar. You know, the kind of aerodynamic uh, detailing that you find on those cars is the same sort of things you'll find on this car. You know, with those those big openings behind the wheel wells, you know, to channel that air through. And there's there's a lot of speculation, you know. There, Right now, ACO, the the organization that that does the rules for for Le Mans and for the World Endurance Championship, is you know considering what to do for the the next set of prototype rules for the the 2020 season, and one of the the proposals out there because essentially most of the uh, the Le Mans prototype, you know, all the factory Le Mans prototype teams, uh, except for Toyota, have dropped out now. So Toyota is the only one left uh, with a factory team. And so what they're looking at now is a new generation of prototypes that are based on road cars, you know, kind of like in the mid 90s when when the original F1 GTR and then the, the 911 Porsche 911 GT1 and and a bunch of other crazy machines were were created, you know, that won uh, overall at Le Mans. And so they're looking at a new prototype class like that based on road cars uh, to you know be the top class for Le Mans going forward. And this car is is considered, you know, as a potential for that class. Perfectly fine with me. Yep. <laughs> it's absolutely. I love it. No complaints. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's going to have a, a long life as as an icon. Um, you know, good or, good or bad, it's going to to be remembered and mentioned. And once it gets out there and starts performing, because you know that that some of them are going to get raced, and I, I, that's a it's a perfect venue to see this car do its its best. Um, and, you know, McLarens are pretty serious cars, so uh, I have no doubt it's going to impress. Don't you feel like this is one of the, like, last real, like, all-out, like, you know, like, this is one of the, it's going to be one of the last truly great, like, petrol cars that we're going to see. Because I think like a few years from now, I think like we're going to see, you know, more and more cars like the NSX. I think we're going to see more and more cars like fully EV, you know, really going after that track pedigree. I, I don't know. I feel no, like this I, is I, the last I, of I think a breed. You're, yeah. 
I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right uh, because you know even the P1 the last the previous uh, McLaren Ultimate Series car you know they have their their three different series the Sport and the Super Series and and the the Ultimate Series and this is the the next you know the next the follow on to the P1 that was the P1 was a plug in hybrid yeah and you know almost certainly the the next Ultimate Series car and and probably the other you know the other mainstream relatively speaking mclarens um, will will be hybrids as well so yeah i mean this this will probably be the the last you know purely naturally aspirated mclaren and you know probably the last of this type of of hypercar you know with the exception of you know some really low volume stuff like the pajanis and you know um the koenigseggs and and some of these other crazy machines but you know uh, from from a relatively volume manufacturer, this is probably the last that we'll see. Yeah, I is that bad? No, I don't know. I kind of I've kind of softened on it. Like it's definitely going to be a shift, but I don't know whether it's necessarily a, a bad thing. It's just time time marches on. Electric cars can be a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, and the NSX is certainly impressive. Oh yeah. I mean, we'll get into this with the the last topic we're going to hit today about the the new Porsche interior. But like something, you know, wh- yeah. why don't we? Oh, sorry. Yeah, let's 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 go there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, like for me, and this is a good like tie over to that. But I was really really torn between getting you know the nine eight one. And the 987. If you're not a huge Porsche Cayman person, uh, you know, the, the 987 is the first gen uh, Porsche Cayman. And this is, if you get in this car and drive it, it's a freaking wonderful experience. It is really a driving experience from another era. You know, the steering is hydraulic. There's an actual key <laughs> if you get into it that starts an ignition. You know, there's an actual emergency. You mean you actually have to yeah. shift, stick a piece of metal into a slot and turn it? <laughs> yes, you do. It's, you know, it is really that car was really the last Porsche that was before it really, really went all in on electronics. And, you know, the 981, it's a better car. It's faster. The base Cayman is faster than the old S uh, Cayman. Uh, and the electronic steering is better, but you lose something in that transition. And I just think it's, you know, it's it's not that it's bad where we're going. It's just, you know, this is the age and this is the best we got from it. So... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I I don't think it's not it's definitely worth um lamenting as it passes. You know, like savor it, guys, cuz I I think I think you're you're right. I I think it's going to be a different landscape uh soon, for better or for worse, but it it's coming. Um and so like Sam, you mentioned you mentioned prototypes in another way, but we've seen now uh a new 911 uh interior prototype uh kicking around um with some some spy shots and i mean porsche interiors change at a pretty glacial pace yes. because well especially the 911 yeah. you know more than 50 yeah. years now you know i mean the car around it has changed quite a bit but you know the uh, there's been there's a lot of similarity you know if you look at a 911 today and a 911 from 1964 you know you will immediately recognize that these are both 911s, you know, with that long yeah. elliptical, uh, you know, cluster for the, you know, the instrument cluster, yep. um, you know, and some of the other features. And this one kind of changes that. Yeah. 
It's a really yeah. radical departure. I don't know what the frack I'm looking at in that center console. <laughs> I, said, I think they're, yeah. they're definitely going to have that little shaver-shaped shifter. I guarantee you. What is that? Sure. It's like a little... It's, it's a little, a little kind of thing. Yeah, it's like a, a Tic Tac box as your shifter. <laughs> hey, I mean, at least they gave you that. You know, a lot of... You know, I mean, modern Ferraris, and you don't even get a, a shift lever or anything like that anymore. It's just a bunch of buttons. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know there are some 911s that really just, they're, they're excellent cars, like the GT versions. But I am one of the people that thinks the 911 has gotten too big. It's really become more of a luxury car. And I know they, you know, put that amazing engine tech in the, you know, in the back of it, and they managed to get the performance to come out. But I think overall, in my opinion, the 911 is not a car I pine for the way I did 911s in the 90s and nils. Yeah. Um, and I look at this interior and I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot, but I am, I guess I'm just kind of a dinosaur that I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the value of touchscreen everything, and especially in a car like a Porsche. Like, you know, physical instrumentation has a purpose. You can identify everything without taking your eye off the road. And, you know, seeing Porsche go all in on this, I'm just, I'm, I'll give it a chance, but I'm not sold. Well, I think if I'm Porsche, too, like the, the wonderful thing about Porsche buyers is they will pay more for less. Yes. Such as <laughs> the Boxster Spider, yep. um, where they'll R. right, they'll they'll pay, they'll charge you more to take stuff out, and then if you want to add like a couple things back in, like if you decide <laughs> like, okay, I want the lightweight car, yes. I don't need the fancy like power seats, but it would be nice to have a radio and air conditioning. Okay, fine, <laughs> or at least we'll the charge air conditioning. You, right, we'll charge you a lot extra to put crappy versions of that back in the car. <laughs> like they're brilliant. <laughs> this is the company that um, so, brought you the most over-engineered okay. cup holder in the world. Like, of yeah. course, yes. I mean, um, por- por- Porsche has you know clearly perfected the art of extracting money from rich people. Yes. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that's fine. I I do agree though. For me, sort of the the pinnacle of the 911 was the very last with the 993s, right? The very last air cooled yep. uh, 911s, and I mean, I pine so hard for a G50 you know, Super Carrera mm-hmm. from, you know, like 78 to 85, 86. I mean, it's, that's that's the iconic 911. Yeah. That that car doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and for better, actually, for most people who are, are buying 911s, um, you know, they almost died a couple of times. <laughs> Multiple and, times. Yeah, and, and this car almost killed them to the point where they they had to evolve. And, you know, the, the first generation of of uh water-cooled 911s now is is the bargain for for now um it's it's actually quickly climbing the value ladder because they're still good cars to drive yeah they they're a little cheaper interior wise um than the later cars and they share a nose with the boxster so you know the the cost cutting is kind of obvious but they're still great 911s um but even like that's 20 years ago now. Yeah. So there's been 20 years of progress. And yeah, I it's just a very different car. Um, I want to see what a base model 911 is going to be like uh, in this in this generation. Are they all going to be PDK? Are they all going to have turbo? Yeah, I, I mean, and that's that's not bad. It's just it's I wonder different. if they would bring back the 912 badging for that. 
Yeah, you get the four cylinder non turbo. It's a yeah. partnership with Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but isn't it um, weird seeing Porsche put such an emphasis on these four cylinder cars? And the whole reason I didn't want to go for the seven one eight, which is you know the newest Cayman, <laughs> is because it's got that four cylinder with the turbo, and you know on paper it's a it's a faster engine. It's got linear acceleration, but yeah. it's just you know they did it to. You know, and I'm an environmentalist. I appreciate it, but they did it to like boost the full fuel economy, and it's just that's like, what it's all about. It it yeah. I understand it, but it just feels wrong. <laughs> no, it's it's yeah, a different car. Yeah. It's a completely different car. Yeah. Um, and that's like again, it's not it's not necessarily better or worse. You know, some things got better. You know, it has a lot more torque right right off the line, but then that really changes the driving experience because part of the great thing about uh, the Boxster and the Cayman was you had to work for yep. it. And, and now you don't. And so it's, well, it's and, and there's, there's also the, the visceral experience, you know, and a big part of that is the sound. Yep. Yeah. Know, I mean, the, you know, Porsche flat six engines have always had a distinctive sound to them. Unlike anything else, um, you know, and you know, the same goes for so many other cars, you know, that, that, you know, they have, you know, different types of engines, different architectures have unique sounds to them that, just from hearing it, you can tell what it is. I mean, you can you can tell when you're hearing a Corvette, you know, versus a 911 versus a Ferrari. You know, they're they're all very unique. I have to give you props on the. I I fell into a video hole of watching videos of your track hawk, and that sound. No. You want to talk about a sound for a car like that is that would not be out of place in a Halo game. I tell you. Oh, it, yeah. so when I had the um the uh charger hellcat i actually um recorded just 30 seconds of it starting up revving and pulling out of the driveway oh and i gosh. posted that as a special podcast episode <laughs> and it's gotten like it's one of the best of my tiny other little side project it's gotten what like some of the the highest traffic i think <laughs> all the episodes. Have, have you have you watched yeah. casey's uh alfa romeo video yeah i did i did i think it's a good first effort so yeah, yeah. but i mean that yeah. i mean that's another one you know that you know, in the age of electrified vehicles it's going to be i'm i'm going to miss hearing engines like that yeah, i mean that definitely. that engine just sounds so amazing yeah definitely definitely my you know i've got a I, I love my husband, but I hate his, uh, you know, his, his challenger. It just, yeah, he's got the, uh, the, I think it's the SXT model. It's not the Hellcat. STX. Yeah. STX. And it's just, it sounds so weak to me. It is. It, well, that's yeah. the, that's the V6, right? It is a V6. Yeah. 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 They're, they're a different car with the V8. They make a pretty throaty sounding Hemi. Yep. Um, but you, you know, he has all the joys of the challenger with none of the, uh, the feeding. <gasps> Of the V8. <laughs> Can I tell you, this uh, is, I got to tell you all this story. This is so true. So I was doing a, uh, I was doing a radio interview here in Boston and uh, somebody that's a really big president at our NPR station, uh, he's interviewing me and uh, we're doing it. It's going very well. We're talking about the economy, all of this. And he looks outside and the, the guy that's the president of NPR sees my husband's car where he's picking me up. He goes, 
That looks like the kind of car a meth dealer would drive, a crystal meth dealer. (laughs) Wait, wait, who was this that said that? Uh, This is somebody, he's uh, the president of WBUR here in Massachusetts, which is an NPR affiliate. So, uh, yeah, yeah. and then the funny thing is, I looked it up later. That's that's Charlie Kravitz. Walter White did have one for a a time. That's exactly what I got for his son. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) like that is my (laughs) husband's car. I can't believe it. Well, I mean, you should have just played it up. Be like, what? What do you know? What do you, like, <laughs> no, he's yeah. stalking outside yeah. my house right now. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, hey, we should um, we should hit up a question or two. We have a couple of questions. Well, well b- before before we before oh. we get into the questions, uh, I just want to uh, touch you know, since since Bria is running for Congress, sure. uh, I'd like to hear her thoughts on you know. What, if anything, you think that uh, should be done as far as policy with for automated driving and automotive cybersecurity? Well, I think you know one of my really big issues is cybersecurity. We need to invest a uh, billion dollars in cybersecurity. We need to go all in on open source uh, use by the government. Uh, you know, we have got to really get serious about uh, writing standards that certain government. Uh, offices are forced to follow. You know, security isn't a destination. It's a process. And the problem is right now we've got all these different um, agencies across the government and there's not any central authority like watching out for data. In in the last election, like we saw some really, really troubling uh, interference from a hostile foreign power. So, uh, you know, when it comes to automotive technology, I, w- I want to tell you guys, so I got a little $20 Wi-Fi ODB2 port scanner thing off of um, Amazon. And I plugged it into my Audi TT uh, to try fix it. And I, I didn't go deeply into this, but I started looking at if I could like hack through this $20 thing to hack and affect my, um, my Audi. And yes. it was beyond vulnerable, default <laughs> password, very easy to affect the throttle and, and fuel consumption. Someone could theoretically very seriously mess up my car. And I do believe, especially as we're talking about vehicle-to-vehicle communications, we've got to have some standards here. I don't think it's the kind of thing that government is really the best people to do. So I think like the the best option there is to you know establish uh, you know basically open open standards boards and and work with them. But clearly, we need some leadership on this issue because without it, it's exactly like you said, like vehicle to vehicle communication. Nothing is going to happen. Yeah, well, well oh, go ahead, Dan. I was just, uh, you know, as we do more of this stuff, one of the things that's always bugged me is um, there are other places on the globe Mm -hmm. that also think about this kind of stuff. And they sort of, to a certain degree, have a lead on uh, some of it. You know, a lot of the technology that we're talking about deploying here is is already out in the field or is is being – it's further down the the testing path um, in in other countries. And um, it would be great to – to accept that and just like, like we don't need, you know, e- even when you back up to stuff like crash standards and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a long list of federal motor vehicle safety standards. I, I understand that like 
we're not going to go in and, and guns blazing uh, with a, a congressional seat from Massachusetts sure, change everything. Sure, I get sure. it. But like the idea of harmonizing some of those things, like, you know, even emission standards, if we could harmonize with uh, European emission standards, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing and the cost of this stuff would go down. And, uh, you know, so it's interesting to see as the communications protocols uh, happen if we can pick up on some of those those learnings of places that have already tried V to V and V to I, and you know see what they've learned and see how they've figured it out and and um, not necessarily have that hubris to say like nope we need to make our own standard and we need to do it our own way because then you're just actually driving up the cost for for everyone and you know you get that that Android versus iPhone kind of like. Ours is better. No, ours is better. You know what? They actually both do the same thing. I, I think, yeah. the, you know I I think the goal that we need to be going for with a lot of this, because you're right, it's not just, you know, America is not the only country in the world, as I understand it. <laughs> right. you know, like, like, so shocking. Look at, look at the way the USB board. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> right. Right. We're going uh, to have uh, Alec Jones going after this podcast very soon. Yeah, Jesus. No, look, at, look at like the H264 uh, board for like doing... Um, uh, encoding, right? Yeah. Like they look at this, you've got a panel of experts from the industry. It is insulated from politics to a certain extent. Uh, you've got various countries involved with that. And they just kind of quietly do their work with this open standard that other people can use. Same thing with USB to a certain extent. And I think yeah. that's the model we need to be looking at because, you know, if you have government coming in and like writing cybersecurity protocol for this, you and I both know like lobbyists are going to sabotage it and it's going to get laden down by people that don't know what they're doing. I think the more we can insulate this from the political process, but also mandate it, I think that's really where the answer is. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad glad to hear you say that. Uh, you know, and as far as cybersecurity goes, you know, th this has been you know something that I've been pushing, you know, with the people I've worked with in the industry for like at least the last seven years. Yeah. And you know, the the good news is that you know over the last two two and a half years, um, you know, I've seen a, just a total sea change in the attitude towards this. When I first started talking to people within some of the OEMs, you know back in 2010, 11, uh, you know, basically the attitude was no, I mean, you know, they can't, ha you know, these systems are secure. They can't hack them. And this was at the time when, you know, we we're starting to see the first public demos at black hat and DEF CON of people hacking into, into some of the systems and vehicles, you know, with going through the tire pressure monitor systems and things like that. Um, you know, and, and at the time, you know, most of the, the attacks, you know, most of the early attacks required physical access, you know, um, you know, plugging into that OBD2 port. Um, but, you know, as we saw, you know, later on, you know, in, in 2015, you know, they Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek in particular, and also other researchers at universities, California and San Diego and University of Washington found ways to go through the telematic systems and take, you know, remote control of vehicles. And, um, you know, so the, the industry has woken up to this problem. And, you know, we've now got several automakers that have formal uh, bug bounty programs. Uh, you know, GM, Fiat Chrysler, Tesla all have bug bounty programs. Others have more informal programs. But also, 
you know, the industry as a whole, with the exception of Tesla, has come together. And, you know, in late 2015, they formed the, the auto ISAC, the Automotive Information Sharing and Analysis Center. You know, um, and, you know, ISACs are something that exists in a lot of different industry verticals. And the auto ISAC, you know, is focused on, you know, letting these companies work together to share information and best practices and, you know, develop policies and procedures for all of this stuff, you know, for, for improving security, because they, they've, they've come to realize that if they're, you know, if they're going to have connected and, and automated vehicles that they've got to be secure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so the, the industry is, has really woken up and is, and is, is working hard on this. And, you know, to, to the, to, you know, to that end, you know, Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek, do you know where those guys are working right now? I don't actually. <laughs> They work for Cruise Automation, that subsidiary of General Motors. Huh. They're working on GM's automated and security of GM's automated driving program. Wow. Well, that, yeah. you know, and I, I think that the automakers have shown, even on hardware, such like engines and automatic transmissions and stuff, the, a willingness to to work together because of the the just the thin margins and the way the industry has shifted. They know what side their, their brand is buttered on, and they say, you know what? But it's it's smarter for us to just develop this stuff together. It's expensive and hard, and we can still make it our own. Well, especially in the, in the pre-competitive stuff. phase, you know, when you're yeah. developing the core technologies, right? And you know, like, and for V2V, you know, they, the industry has worked together through the Society of Automotive Engineers to develop these standards because you know things like V2V will never work unless everything is speaking the same language, the same message formats, and and the same yeah. security systems. Uh, you know, so it, it has to be uniform across the industry. Otherwise, it's going to be useless. And so, you know, they did get together through SAE and, and develop these standards. So they, they do exist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and there's that. Um, I mean, when, when, they, when they collaborate like that, it, it's it's not. I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it, it just it, it, it creates something that's that's long lived. Right. Um, think about. JPEGs, right? That's Joint Picture Experts Group. Uh, that was developed in the in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, the 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 GIF. Um, I'm going to say GIF. Some people say GIF. <laughs> that was 1987. It's still here. Uh, so when you have groups that that sort of come together and define a standard, and then everybody can work within that standard, even automotively with with OBD two. Um, that wasn't necessarily automakers developing it, but it, it has become a standard and there's still room for um, sort of customized pockets uh, within OBD2 uh, where you have the specific codes and different tuning interfaces and stuff. So I don't know. I'm encouraged. And I, I think that um, the security of autonomous vehicles, especially since they're all going to be web connected, you know, they're all going to have like a 4G connection in them. It's going to be easier to crack into it. No system is secure like 100% secure when you're doing the things that we're going to be doing with them. But, um, you know, the benefits certainly outweigh, outweigh the risks. I, I think that there's, there's a lot of attention paid to it. And I, I just, I don't think the threat is as great as we make it out to be. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I hope I can say this, but, uh, is 1143 and I've got to head to bed very soon. <laughs> All right. so, we keeping uh, you up? Too? Yes. Sorry. Well, I've got a meeting in the morning. So, uh, can we wrap this on up? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Bree. Oh. Um, and, and tell the listeners where they can find oh, out more gosh. about what you're doing. I mean, like in the show now, I'll take it. Oh, so okay. yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you want to vote for serious, like 
leadership that is more focused on the future, that is more focused on the American people, I really ask you to look at my uh, look at my congressional campaign. You know, uh, I am a software engineer. I'm a cybersecurity person. Uh, you know, I'm someone that's really fought in the trenches to get women treated with more equality in the workplace. And those are the exact same values I will bring uh, serving as your congresswoman uh, in the great state of Massachusetts. So uh, if you want to look at that, go to BriannaWu2018.com. If you'd like to uh, donate to my campaign, you could do that at supportbriana.com. There you go. And so the eighth, you're the eighth district, right? Yep. So going up against Stephen um, Lynch. Okay. Uh, and, and that's, is that south of? Yeah, it's you know, southeast. So basically, Dedham. You know, it's a uh, it's this weird U going all through Boston. Like right. Jamaica Plains is there, West Roxbury is there. So it is. Those uh, are two very nice neighborhoods now, JP and, and really West Roxbury. Are. They really are. Quite nice. Yeah. yeah. That's also the LGBT part of Boston. So it's it's a. I tell you, it is a. It is like you've got the most. Bernie, like ultra liberal, <laughs> like communist part of Boston, and then you go over to the most conservative, right wing Donald Trump voters, and I talk to <laughs> all those people all the time. Are so. those people allowed in Boston? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah. you, you would You'd be surprised. Be very surprised. Um, Boston has this reputation as a very uh, sort of blue liberal city. Not true. <laughs> no, Massachusetts is conservative. Uh, well, they did way more elect William Weld and, and Mitt Romney. Yeah. So Mitt yep. is, um, I, I think Mitt has been unfairly maligned in some way. So yeah, that's another podcast. Yes. It is. <laughs> oh my uh, well, well good, good luck and, and come back uh, anytime. To talk I, about cars. I we promise, you, uh, I've talked all day long about the national debt and like racial strife. Talk about cars all evening. This is freaking great. So thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Yeah. We'll be in Oasis anytime. Yep. Awesome. All right. <laughs> all right. Talk to y'all soon. Thanks, Briggs. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. All right. So, uh, Dan, you want to answer yes. a couple of questions? Sure. All right. Uh, let's see. We got Dan M. who asked, will EV crossovers ever be able to adequately go off road? Not rock crawling, but more, more than navigating a fire road. What do you think? Um, I don't see why not. Uh, I think it's it's tucking the stuff that um, is delicate up out of the way. Same as regular uh, off-road vehicles with, for, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the only potential issue I see with it is, you know, because batteries are so heavy, um, you know, obviously, you know, for, you know, he, he said not, not necessarily rock crawling, but just, you know, in general off-road, um, you know, you've got to get everything up up and out of the way, you know, and that, that tends to raise the center of gravity. And, you know, if you're packing a battery pack up there, up high like that, um, that both on and, and off road, you know, that may not necessarily be the best from a, a vehicle dynamic standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I, I think it, it's certainly doable. It, it definitely makes for an ungainly off roader because you, you know, by the nature of an off roader where you've got a lot of, um, ground clearance uh you've really got to spread out that load too like you've got that that battery centralized it changes the vehicle's ability to um to to especially to rock crawl um if that's what you you want to be doing because you've got so much mass and you know that's that's gonna hurt you when you get the thing leaned over and the suspension all fully articulated 
you know, all of a sudden you've got a couple thousand pounds or, you know, a thousand pounds worth of batteries that are just going to just, you know, pull you right over that you wouldn't have with a regular combustion engine. So it's, it'll be solved, you know, either, you know, wider tires, wider wheelbases, some way, you know, of taking care of that, that issue. Cause you, you know, you're creating a a different lever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, what we, we may actually, you know, we'll probably actually see fairly soon, um, you know, how realistic this is because, uh, you know, recently we had the launch of uh, Bollinger Motors um, with their um, their all electric uh, SUV. And, you know, it's got the battery pack, you know, kind of slung up into the, the floor pan. And you know, I mean, this thing, you know, it, it looks like a serious off roader. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it looks very, you know, Humvee like, except for that pass through straight through you know from the from the front cargo compartment straight through the middle of the truck and right out the back uh you know and i saw this thing at the la auto show and it's pretty impressive looking uh you know we'll we'll see how well it actually works in in real life but um you know if this thing can actually work off road you know that i guess that'll answer the question yeah and i think that um you're gonna you're gonna see off-roaders that are electric powered at a certain point. And I think that, you know, we're talking about the extremes. We're saying like, yeah, just a soft rotor that goes on a dirt path. And then we're talking about rock crawling. There's a lot of space in between those two extremes that, uh, you know, yeah, electric vehicles are going to proliferate if we keep going at the rate where we're going and it may even accelerate. So, uh, you know, somebody's going to come up with something that goes off road and has electric propulsion and uh, gets you stranded out in the woods where you need a very long extension cord. (laughs) All right. And (laughs) yes, (laughs) It's, it's, it's not something you'll be able to address with a jerry can of gas. No. Uh, okay. So, uh, we did get another question via Twitter. That's actually, um, okay. we should, we should email it to Brianna, um, and see if we can get her to, to, to just weigh in, uh, for next week. But, um, let me load up. I'm loading up the Twitters now as the internet is nice and, and slow. Um, but, uh, it was, it was almost, it's a policy question. Let me. Let me see where it is here. Well, we also we also had a, a question um, about. Uh, let's see, is from uh, from Mark Martinet uh, asking about. Um, let's see, uh, his fiance and he are looking at uh, cars and wanted to ask, "Am I crazy?" Um, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but here's the rest of the question. So they're looking at the Subaru Impreza five door sport wagon and the Crosstrek Premium. They're the same car except for the height, ride height, uh, interior trim, and the sport uh, sports active torque vectoring. Every dealer in Southern California wants sticker on the Crosstrek and is willing to deal on the wagon. And uh, he's coming in. He's coming from a WRX that he's had for ten years and loved. Uh, it's time to move to a more practical car. The sport wagon seems to be the no brainer thanks to the cost savings, better trim uh, on the sport for less less money than the premium, and it'll only be. Excuse me, off-road on dirt and gravel roads. Um, bikes still fit in the back just the same on both. So am I crazy or is there some magic pill we need to take? So cross track or uh or the or the uh, sport wagon, what do you think? Sport wagon. Yeah. I, I mean agree. I I like the cross track, don't get me wrong. I, I actually like the cross track a lot, but I think this the sport wagon is it's better to drive, it's better outfitted. It's just yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what I would do. I, I, I agree. Um, so, 
Uh, did did uh, was there anything else? I, I found the, I did find the oh, question. Okay. Um, so and and we we talked about uh, some policy things, but the the question is, and we'll email it. Um, but I wanted to tee it up as well, so that we we just sort of set the expectation to get an answer. Um, as a potential member of Congress, how does the government plan funding for electric infrastructure upgrades for the mm-hmm. fossil energy to be replaced by electricity for transportation? It's a huge gap now, and and I think that that's. That that is something that we we're going to need to tackle. <laughs> so electric yeah, no, cars, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely an issue. You know, I mean, making sure that there's enough electricity generation to support, you know, widespread use of EVs. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that's that's going to help with that, you know, is more adoption of of solar, you know, and and localized solar production. Uh, yep. You know, and you know what what uh, we uh, my my other colleagues at Navigant. Uh, Research and Navigant Consulting like to refer to as DER, distributed energy resources. You know, so rather than relying entirely on on centralized power plants, you know, that are uh, either burning coal or natural gas or or you know nuclear plants, you know, to generate um, energy and, and distribute it through the grid, you know, is is more distributed power generation. You know, so smaller scale generation, um, you know, that's that's used more locally. You know, and then, you know, also incorporating um, mechanisms into the grid to, to help support the grid, you know, to, to help with load balancing. One of the interesting things that, um, you know, we didn't talk about last week with the uh, with the new Leaf, the new Nissan Leaf, is one of the features that they've built into it is uh, something that, you know, they're calling, you know, vehicle uh, vehicle to grid or or vehicle to vehicle to X support, uh, as they're referring to it. You know, it's kind of confusing it with vehicle to vehicle to external communications, but um, they're, you know, they've built in bi-directional charging capabilities and they've got a a standard, uh, Nissan's developed a standard called Leaf to Home that, you know, is published and it's available for companies to incorporate. And it's something that they've, they launched in Japan a couple of years ago and it's it's now available here on the the new Leaf. Uh, See, this is the the talk about sort of harmonizing, right? Learn, learn from what's being done elsewhere. Yeah. And and so, (laughs) I mean, you know, you can, you can get this, this box, you know, that is basically, um, you know, an external version of the power electronics on the car. So the power electronics on an EV convert, you know, do the conversion back and forth between AC and DC. You know, so the motors run on alternating current batteries generate DC uh, direct current, um, you know, and they, they use AC for the motors because it's more efficient. Um, and so the, the power electronics in the car switch, do that switching back and forth. So it's basically a giant inverter and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that switches it back, you know, when you're doing regenerative braking, well, what this leaf to home box does is it essentially externalizes that and it allows you to plug in to the DC fast charging port on the car and either take power from the battery to power your home. You know, if you've got a power outage um, or uh, if, you know, uh, if you're, if, if, if you have power, you know, it can feed it back in through that box, you know, through the DC fast charging port. Um, but you know what you know that that whole concept can be scaled you know so for example if you've got a, a business uh you know or you know a company you know might have a fleet of several dozen or several hundred evs that can be plugged in uh and you know during the course of the day you know they may be when they're not in use they can be plugged in and and the batteries in the car can be used for for load balancing because one of the things that most people don't realize is you know for businesses when they're um the the way 
businesses get charged for electricity and for 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 normal consumers like us, you know, we we pay per for every kilowatt hour we use. And because the amount that we use is comparatively small, but for a business that might be using might have much higher power demands, um, you know, they they have um, they get charged based on a, a formula that's a, a mix of their their total power usage but also on their their peak loads so if there's certain times of the day when their power out when their power needs spike you know they get charged way more for that but if they had a bunch of evs plugged into their local microgrid you know for for mm. their campus or something like that it, that you know when there's a, a certain you know when there's a, a peak in demand for power they can pull that from pull some power from the cars instead of pulling it from the grid, uh, from the larger grid. And that can dramatically reduce their energy costs. And it can also help reduce the load on on the overall grid. So, you know, things like this are, are starting to become a reality now. And that's going to help a lot with, redu- you know, with um, reducing the overall load on the grid. Yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff is. Uh, th- that needs some standardization too, and it sounds like they've they've worked a bunch of that stuff out. Um, you know, there's it gets a little a little hinky when you're sort of backfeeding the grid, right? And that's that's one of the things like the the grid likes stability, <laughs> um, right? And so w- when you're putting too much into it, then you're, you're causing an issue too. So just having everything, you know, the the metering set up to say like, okay, we're sending X amount up so you know dial back by x amount over there like it's all it needs to be smarter you know it's just kind of a it, I, you know i i hear people sort of bag on the, the power industry and say like well it's just it's a very old technology and it's, you know was designed for the 19th century that's that's not true um but it's definitely not not to the point where everybody's meter is a smart meter and you know able to share that load and, and spread it out. But I, I think if we want to be clever about it, there's, there's a lot of ways for um, the grid to just support EVs, uh, especially when they charge. I mean, you could do something simple, just like solar with hydroelectric uh, storage, right? So mm-hmm. just when the solar's not being consumed, it's pumping water from, yeah. you know, low to high. <laughs> and then yeah, when, when I mean, that's simple. You set up a pond, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a pump and it just like it, it's it's elegant and you know yeah certainly it's not perpetual motion like there's definitely losses it's not the best solution but it's a, right, a yeah. solution yeah no it, and you know i mean that that's you know especially when you have you know a, um a power source you know like the sun that is not you know continuous load you know when you're running a you know a, a gas or coal-fired power plant you know or a nuclear plant you know, you get a continuous flow of electricity out of that. As long as you keep it, keep it fueled, it's going to generate power, you know, but the sun doesn't work that way. The wind doesn't work that way. So you have to have some energy storage to balance it out. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting ways that you could do that, you know, that, you know, depending on where you are, you know, and you're going to have different solutions in, in different places, depending on, on what works. I mean, you know, the, what you just, you know, the, the hydro, uh, solution that you just described will work in some locations, not, you know, perhaps not in other places, uh, you know, other places you may want to use batteries or, or something else. So, yeah. Or even just, you know, compressed air. So there's a lot of ways, a lot of ways. So anyway, 
Um, you know, I think we should follow Brianna's lead and, and get out of here after uh, almost two hours of podcasting. I think it's uh, I think it's time to give everybody a break. All right. Sounds like a plan. And uh, we'll see you all next week. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.